Shalom, Mishpacha. Shalom, family. Mishpacha is a Hebrew word. It means family. And we're the Mishpacha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people where the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's finally come down to form one new man. Getting ready, Mishpacha, to blow the grandest shofar, oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion. We want everyone, everywhere, to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. And before I started this interview, I told Misty Edwards, she provokes me to jealousy because I am, well, my wife's not here, so I can say it. I am proud when I get an hour's worth of praying in tongues and worship in every day. And, uh, but Misty, uh, the people out at IHOP, that's your lifestyle. That's your oxygen. Uh, Tell me what your average day consists of in reference to prayer and worship. Oh, well, my average day in reference to prayer and worship would be I usually lead one prayer meeting a day. So that's about a two-hour period of time where I'm, you know, at the keyboard leading in worship and prayer. And then I have another two-hour block where I am in the prayer room with my Bible open, just praying in the Spirit uh, praying around the Psalms or whatever passage the Lord has going down my prayer list. So, I, you know, about four hours a day, I aim to be in the prayer room. I'm not saying all of that's, you know, deeply connected, but at least my heart's, you know, in front of the fire. <laughs> but, you know, I got saved at 30. I, I didn't, as the Bible says, I didn't know my left hand from my right hand spiritually until I was 30 years of age. But at, at five, you became a believer, and the thing that intrigues me so much is that you had a strong sense of eternity. You knew life was short. How does a five-year-old even fathom those thoughts? Oh, I, I mean, I remember from being you know, the, the small. Some of my earliest memories are just sitting on my swing set, trying to grasp forever. You know, I would just be like, forever, 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 forever. Mom, how long is forever? You know, just that that feeling of we're never going to end, and yet everybody dies. You know, my my great-grandmother passed away when I was very young, and so I just had this this awakening that we were all going to die. And I just had a real sense of the fragility of life and the speed of which it was going, which I mean, it just prepared. But how does a five-year-old have that sense? That's, but let me tell you my story. When I was about five, my, my parents uh, participated in athletics. Uh, their sport of choice was poker. And they were playing poker all night long. And I'm a five-year-old sitting in the bed, and the thought popped in my head, what happens when you die? I mean, I don't know where it came from. That Now I know it came from God. And I pondered it. And my conclusion was, as a five-year-old, you cease to exist. Mm. But your conclusion was right. Well, I had, I had godly parents, for one thing. So when I asked my mom, you know, how long is forever and what happens when we die, she did give me an answer that, that satisfied me. I was very young when I came to know the Lord, although I still had a sense of, uh, I was still searching even after I said the sinner's prayer. I still had a sense of, but why am I here? You know, I knew where I was going when I died, but I couldn't figure out why I existed. You know, what was the purpose on this side of time? So, yeah, I, th- I think that that cry is in the heart of every five, six, seven-year-old. That's about the age where those thoughts and those longings are awakened in the human heart. Okay. Age 19, uh, you go out to Kansas City to Bible school. 
uh, Mike Bickles has a class on Song of Solomon. Yes. That had a major impact on you. Explain. It had a major impact on me. I was raised in a, a very uh, loving family with a focus on holiness and character. You know, I felt the love of God on and off throughout my life. But, but in this Song of Solomon class, Mike was really touching on the longings of the human heart. You know, the longing for greatness, the longing for purpose, the longing for uh, destiny, the longing for beauty, to be enjoyed, love. You know, the basic longings of all humans in every culture that we have. And, and he says that, you know, in God we find the answer to these longings, that he is the fountain of desire. And through the Song of Solomon and through the bridal paradigm, as, as Mike calls it, become, you know, knowing Jesus as a bridegroom with burning desire instead of just as a master with a checklist totally changed my paradigm of God and my desire to respond to him in the same kind of wholeheartedness that he was pursuing me. I mean, it radically changed uh, my view of God, which changed my worldview, which changed the view of myself. I mean, it, it, it transformed me radically. Now, now, with all of that prayer and all of those studies and all the things that a 19-year-old is involved in in life, uh, you still managed to sneak away to the laundry room to get away so that you could seek God. Yeah, and at that, at that time, you know, I was working at a daycare center. I was a preschool teacher. This was the year before the House of Prayer had started. I was in Bible school but I had, I, that class had awakened such a hunger in my heart. And I was saying, God, if this is real, like I'm, I'm kind of the kind of person that doesn't get convinced easily. And so I liked the feeling of hearing what Mike was saying, but I kept saying, is this real? I have to know for myself. So I would take the notes. I'd take my Bible, that little Song of Solomon commentary, go into my little dirty, you know, apartment um, laundry mat and just say, look at the stars and go, if you're there, God, and you hear me, is this real? Do you really feel this way about human beings? Are you watching me right now? So it was, it was almost a desperate cry at the same time of feeling his, his presence. It was a funny mixture of desperation and presence at the same time. <laughs> now, you wrote a song called Dove's Eyes. Yes. Tell me about that. Dove's Eyes is out of the Book of Song of Solomon, where uh, the bridegroom, he says to the, to the Shulamite that you have dove's eyes. And what I believe that speaks of is a single vision, that you have focus, that you, that you can't, you know, a dove cannot turn their eyes in either direction. They're fixed. And so when, he, when the, the bridegroom says to us, you have dove's eyes, he's saying, I see in you the sincerity to be mine, even in our weakness. You know, I certainly have failed many, many times over the last 14 years, you know, since I was 19. I've failed many, many times. But at the core of me, he says, you have dove's eyes. He says, I know you want me. I know you're pursuing me. Just keep coming. You know, if you don't quit, you win. And so to hear him say that over my heart gives me courage when I do fail to run to him instead of away from him. Let's hear Dove's Eyes. sing right to you I don't want to talk about 
Misty, what's going on inside of you? Uh, what's exploding when you sing that song to God? Oh, when I sing that song to God, I hear him singing that song to me. When he looks at me and says, you do have dove's eyes. And, and I feel so distracted and I have so many things going on in my life. And my own failure, my own sin keeps me from, you know, going to the degree that I want to go in wholeheartedness. But when he whispers to my heart... I see the sincerity of your heart. I know that you love me. Keep coming to me. It is the power that has kept me from quitting uh, over the last decades of my life. It's the power that motivates me, knowing that he sees the sincerity of my heart. It's revolutionary. Although it's revolutionary, I have this question for you. What keeps you powered to be so hungry for God after all these years? Uh, Doesn't it become routine to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And it's a question I ask myself often. There are times, especially in a culture of prayer, where it can become very routine. You know, it becomes like a machine. We know how to make it work. And so I I have to be really honest with myself and honest before God. And whenever I feel like my heart is getting cold and I'm just going through the motions, you know, I hear that that, uh, verse in Revelation that you have a name that you're alive but you've left your first love. And I've heard that a few times. The Spirit has whispered that to my heart over the years. And I, I come to Him with repentance, and I say, Lord, you wanted my heart from the beginning. You didn't want just me to show up in a prayer room every day. That's not even the point. The point is you want my heart. And so I think it's a perpetual returning uh, at the heart level, connecting with the Holy Spirit, um, and re- keeping that as my primary vision, my primary dream, to go deep in His Word to go deep in the spirit, uh, when I realign my mind and my heart over and over again, I find that I have to, I have to sign back up, you know, regularly, though. Uh, you know, when people hear you sing, it's, in, it's literally 
uh, the, the hunger for God, the hunger for the presence of God. It's in your spiritual DNA. And it comes out. And that's why we put together a package. And it's called Audience of One. It's your brand new book and three of your best CDs. And the three CDs in the book, the package is called Audience of One. I mean, after years of consecrating yourself to God and being a worshiper of God, that hunger for God is transmitted. And that's the most important thing that people need right now for a gift of $40. Call or write today for an audience of one. Call our order only line, 1-800-447-2697. How did you become a worship leader, just knowing a couple of chords on the piano? That is a great question, and one I've asked myself many times. Um, I I grew up in a musical family, so I had a a certain grid for music, but I never really applied myself to it. I wanted to become a lawyer. I thought musicians were just kind of flaky, so I never really studied it. But when the House of Prayer started, the International House of Prayer here in Kansas City, we were determined to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop, you know, music. So all of our prayer is based in music. And there were only about 50 of us at the time. Just out of curiosity, when I think of prayer, uh, being religious, uh, my religious mind doesn't have music. I just think you just get down on your knees and you pray. Where'd all this music come from? Well, in Revelation, you see the harp and the bowl, you know, around the throne, you have the, the prayers of the bowl, the incense, which would be more the intercessory prayers as you just mentioned, the getting on your knees and just crying out. But then there's this mysterious element of the harp and the music. And so what we've sought to do is we've sought to make prayer uh, sustainable. And one of the ways to sustain prayer is by making it enjoyable. And to make it enjoyable, we've, we've discovered that music is one of the primary ways that actually makes prayer sustainable and enjoyable. You know, you can sing a worship song or two or three for an hour far easier than you can then only pray. So what we've done is we've combined the spoken prayers with the singing prayers, and together we find that it's sustainable. You know, 14 years later, we've still been going day and night. Oh, okay. Let's go back to how, the, how yes, you were raised in a musical family, but you, uh, you were going to be an attorney. You knew a couple chords on the piano. So how did you become a worship leader? Yeah, well, well, like I was saying, you know, we had this, we had this nobility that we had signed up to do twenty four seven, you know, day and night. The fire on the altar can't go out, which we were defining on the the bed of um, music. So everybody was playing an instrument. It was like all hands on deck. The fire could not go out. So I started doing, you know, p- just doing my two chords. I had about four or five worship songs, you know, I was building up to, and then I would just do spontaneous stuff, just because I didn't know anything. So for two hours. I would just sing, do spontaneous, and I ended up doing that probably four to eight hours a day in those early years just because of raw need. And after doing it four to eight hours a day, my skill level just got better and better, and I learned more chords, and I got a few new songs. (laughs) And just over time, I became a worship leader. It was never my intention. It just kind of of happened. Okay, but then, I mean, you're moving into your, your calling for life, uh, and you're just 19 years of age. How does a 19-year-old cope with cancer? Yes. I got diagnosed with cancer at 19 for the first time. And um, 
it it definitely uh, jolted me, but I, I also it jolted me in a good way because you know it was a cancer that was growing in my leg, and the doctor told me at that time either I was going to lose my life because of the speed of which it was growing, or you know at best I was going to lose my leg. So I was looking at an amputation or you know maybe even death. So all of those feelings, you know, from the time I was very little, I had thoughts of eternity. And now at 19, they were just coming, rushing in on me like a flood. So it was at this point in my life that I really determined, I am going to know God. I am going to face death in the eye, and I am going to find my purpose beyond the grave. And that's the only way I can make sense of the life I'm living, if it's six months or if it's 60 years. The only way I can make sense of it is the continuity into eternity. So I looked God in the eyes, so to speak, and just began a wrestling match at about 19 and 20. What, what about when someone gets cancer, they look at every method, every formula that has ever worked for any person. Were you in that realm? Yes, we did. You know, I tried uh, many options. I was trying to avoid the medical option um, just because of the, the effects of chemotherapy and all the side effects um, yeah, I looked at many different options and sought the Lord. I, I went forward for healing many, many times. We believed in healing, and I believe that the Lord did uh, give me a measure of healing. I still have my leg today, so praise the Lord for that. Um, but yeah, I was searching for many, many methods, and then having to go through chemotherapy, you know, I lost my hair. Just all of that for a, tw- for a 19-year-old girl is a little bit overwhelming. So between you and me. How come you didn't lose your zeal? How come you didn't lose your faith? Oh. When you're saying, here I am, selling out to you. Since, since a five-year-old, I've, I, I, I've been a believer in you, Lord. Now get rid of this. Come on, God. I had to ask those questions. I had that wrestling in my heart. But the thing is, the options to walk away from him, there was no option. I felt so divinely hedged in. I mean, what was I going to do? There's there's just nothing but a black hole outside of God. So to walk away from him, I felt complete despair. So even though I felt like I was in a wrestling match with him, it was better to be in the fight with him than to turn my back on him. That just wasn't even an option to me. It was way too despairing. Well, most people are demanding answers from God, but you got to a point, I guess, of surrender. Tell me about this song we're going to play right now, Finally I Surrender. Yeah, Finally I Surrender was uh, written at a time in my life where I was in that wrestling match. And, I, you know, I have a certain tenacity with God. I hope he appreciates where I was just like, Lord, answer me. You know, I feel like I was kind of in his face, like, answer me. And, and he answered me similar to like he would have been answered a Job. Like, were you there when I spread out the heavens like a curtain? Were you there when I said to the sea this far and no further? It was one of those kind of, I am God and you are not. (laughs) And just pour out your soul. And I found a sweetness in the surrender to his sovereignty and going, you know what? I am a person who loves understanding, but I'm not always going to understand everything. But I trust you anyway. And to trust him in his sovereignty, knowing his heart is for me, was a powerful thing for someone who loves, who's analytical and loves understanding. Let's hear, finally I surrender. I believe there's a message for you.
Tell me what God has shown you about love. Yeah. Oh, this is one of my favorite topics is the topic of love. I believe it's, you know, the topic of God himself, ultimately. But I believe that, that, that the word love, we need another word sometimes because in our culture it can mean so many different things. A lot of times it just means toleration. It means passivity. But I believe, according to Scripture, the word love, when speaking about God, is the all-consuming fire of God himself. So to love God and to love people on his terms is to, to be in agreement with his truth. And sometimes that's the, that's the negative side of truth, meaning his perception of, of what's going on in the earth. And sometimes it's the positive side. Um, and it does involve the compassion, as you mentioned. And it also involves passion. It's not a passive kind of what will be, will be, you know, that kind of love. It's not the hippie kind of love. It's the aggressive kind of love um, that's loyal to the truth and loyal to Jesus. Now, one of your favorite stories is about Corey Tenboom. This is a whole family that literally went into, either died or went into the concentration camp because of their love for the Jewish people. But her sister, Betsy, had a major impact in your life. Tell me about that. Yes, and this, this is a great illustration of what, of what it means to love on God's terms. You know, it's not just loving people who are like us or loving people who love us. But the story of Corrie ten Boone and her sister, Betsy, you know, they're in the prison camp. And Betsy is just fiercely beaten by one of the guards for no reason. And instantly, Corey says that she feels murder in her own heart. And she wants to assault this guard and, and defend her sister. And she felt rage. And so she, she runs at the guard. Or, or, you know, she, she just feels so much anger. And Betsy looks at her and says, you know, Corey, love, love. If you take on the hate and the anger, you become like the very thing that you hate. And that story from the time I was a child and I read that book just became so uh, impactful in my mind of, of a love that's divine. It's that, I mean, humans, you can't make that kind of love happen. Do you walk in that love? Oh, I want to walk in that love. I have experienced, you know, touches of that love. And I, it's my biggest prayer that the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans, you know, pours love into our hearts. Now, now Jesus walked in that kind of love yes. 24-7. So that means if he did it, we can do it. I believe that. I believe that. And I believe I'm in a process of becoming one with that love. And that's my life mission. That's my life goal. That's my primary dream is to embody that love. Well, you know, the two most important commandments is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that, and he says, you fulfill everything if you do that. That's right. Tell, tell me about the song, All I Know. Yes. Um, all I Know is, is a response to Jesus' command, and I believe it was more than a command. I believe it was a prophecy. When he looked, you know, he was talking to the children of Israel in his day and, and then beyond. He was looking at the nations that would read these words, you know, thousands of years later. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And it says that in the same thing as, you know, in the Shema Israel, you shall love the Lord your God. And it's just a testimony of why God created in the first place. He's like, this is why you exist. And not only... Is he commanding us to do it? In the command is the promise of the enabling. That we, I mean, can you imagine loving God with all of your mind? I mean, your mind, that, 
that just that would be phenomenal. And I, you know, in this day of uh, uh, of uh, cell phones, smartphones, computers, iPads, TV, uh, radio, entertainment, books, book readers. I I think people have a great deal of trouble yeah. finding time for God. I agree, especially on the loving God with your mind part. I, I believe that there's a sacred space of the mind that is actually designed for prayer. I mean, our actual mind was created to interact with God. But, you know, if we're constantly being interrupted, that that ceaseless conversation stops. But it's a real struggle in this age. Well, the anointing breaks the yoke, destroys the yoke, and the anointing on this song is going to break the yoke in your life, All I Know by Misty Edwards. Misty, what does it mean, audience of one, to you? Oh, the audience of one um, means the world to me and beyond. I believe that there is one pair of eyes, you know, one applause that we are living for. And if we can make uh, the evaluation of Jesus as our primary reward, our primary dream, our primary goal and vision— uh, it changes everything. So what I say, what I mean by the audience of one is knowing that he's looking at me and he's looking at my heart. 
And I think of, um, of a person that is in a sickbed who can't move, who can't do anything, can be as great as the person who has a global, you know, worldwide ministry. They have equal opportunity, so to speak, in the eyes of God, because he evaluates us by our heart responses in love. And I just, I love that this is the kind of God that we serve. And I want to get in front of his eyes all the days of my life. You know, I had a laugh when uh, I, I read about the first time you had an opportunity to lead worship before a very large group of people. So what was it? Something like 10,000 people. Yeah. Tell me, tell me uh, were you nervous? And then afterwards, what did you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was nervous and I thought, you know, this is I, in my soul. I thought, this is my moment, you know, that I, I've made it. And I lead the worship in the big arena and I walked off the stage and I thought, this is it. <laughs> This is the pinnacle of my ministry and, you know, what I've been working toward. And I felt so empty and disillusioned. You know, I like being used by God, so I don't want to sound ungrateful that, you know, I like the opportunity to lead people. But there's more. And the only time I feel alive is when I lock into His eyes. And then if I'm giving a cup of cold water, I feel the power of it. Or if I'm leading in a stadium, I feel the same power because it's the, same, it's the, the power is in his eyes, not in what I'm doing. But after you finished, did you say, ah, this is it. This is what I want to do the rest of my life. <laughs> well, after I finished, I, I said, I want to do this if I can do this in front of your eyes. Because I had felt so, you know, again, just so disillusioned that, it's not enough to do the ministry. It's not enough to have a big following. It's not in, it doesn't satisfy the, the emptiness that I was feeling on the inside. So, yes, I want to do it as long as it's in his will and before his eyes. And that was the conclusion I came to after leading my first time in a big arena. I, I decided it wasn't going to satisfy me. Well, you know, when you first started in this uh, uh, leading worship in and uh, prayer and mixing the two together, you would spend hours and hours. And you know what? The hours that you've spent soaking in the presence of God, it shows on your music. And that's why we put together your three best music CDs and your brand new book. And we call it Audience of One. Because by the time people listen and soak in your music, that all those hours of prayer, that anointing is going to go right into them. They're going to get that hunger back for God. They're going to get their priorities right. And for the first time, they're going to start seeing their circumstances through God's eyes and be red hot for Jesus. We're making the package Audience of One, available for a gift of $40. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 1-800-447-2697. Misty, if there's ever been a time to hunger for God, uh, more than anything you've ever done in your life, it's now. Uh, tell me about the dream you had about the oil. The dream I had about the oil. Yeah, I was in full-time in the ministry. I was, uh, you know, going 100% full steam ahead. and But I was feeling just an empty, you know, on the verge of what people would call burnout. This was just, you know, this was a few years ago. 
and I was showing up and trying to lead worship, but disconnected. I was reading the Word of God, but I wasn't feeling the the anointing. I didn't want to cry. You know, I wasn't feeling the tenderness on my heart, and and that's a scary place to be because that opens the door for sin. That opens the door for bitterness, anger, uh, all kinds of hardness of heart. And so one night before I went to bed, I just got on my knees and I said, Lord, Lord, I don't understand what is going on in my heart. You need to help me. I said, tell me where I am and how I got here. That night I had a dream, and in the dream I'm in my car, and I'm speeding down a highway. You know, it's pitch black. It's the darkest night, and I am going 100 miles an hour down this highway, feeling completely out of control. And suddenly my car begins to rumble, and I look down and I see the oil light is flashing. And I instantly thought of Matthew 25. I instantly knew what the Lord was saying to me, that I I did not have the oil of intimacy on my heart. And I had put my ministry and I had put, you know, everything that I was doing for the Lord ahead of my relationship with him. And he warned me if I didn't take the time to actually connect with him at the heart level and even say no to a few opportunities, say no to a few uh, things that seemed good in order to have more time or, or just that heart connect, less distraction, um, because the hour was, was, was dark and I wasn't going to make it if I didn't have a deeper connection. So I would link that to the Matthew 25 when he tells the parable about the wise and the foolish. And I believe all— But but wait a second, Misty. You're doing some wonderful things for God. Doesn't that have a priority over just you worshiping God? Yeah, I believe it does have a priority, but I think it's the order, the order of priority. I was doing things that even even would have looked like prayer, but my heart was so far away because I was distracted— I was, it was actually anger. It was bitterness. It was, you know, things weren't going the way that I thought they should. And it was with bitterness and that jadedness kind of, you know. Was, you, slipped, you slipped from being Mary to Martha. Exactly. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. And I don't think that Jesus was telling Martha, you know, he should, that she should never work. He, he wants us to work, obviously. But it's the posture of our heart and the, the order of our priority. And, and you know, in that par- in, in Matthew twenty-five, uh, that's one of my favorite chapters. Uh, everything in Matthew twenty-five, but the ten uh, virgins, five wise and five foolish. The thing that jumps out at me every time I read it is, you've got to get your oil for yourself. You can't trade on someone else's oil. That's right. And I think in a, in a, I live in an environment of fiery people, and it's very easy to pick up on the rhetoric and the language. And, you know, we, we are a people of one thing, but am I a person of one thing? Am I connected to the Holy Spirit? And am I, you know, going deeper in his word and deeper in understanding? So it was a real pivotal time in my life when I had that dream. And I, you know, I began to study Matthew 25. And it's actually one of my life passages uh, because of that. And I continually go back to that. Well, when you were a young child... Uh, you had a favorite song. It was called Resting Place. Yes. Tell me about that song. Oh, I remember singing this from the the time I was little. I don't even remember the first time I heard it, where it's, you know, it speaks of heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool from the book of Isaiah. You know, where is the house you will build for me? And he basically says, I'm not going to dwell in your houses made of hands. I want to dwell with the hearts of men. And I believe ultimately he's actually going to dwell in Jerusalem, but for now it's it's in our hearts um, primarily. 
and I be, want, set my goal to become, you know, Jesus's, so to speak, favorite place, his, his resting place, which means to not strive against him, to not be in disagreement with him, to actually line up my heart. If we're in agreement with him, then we're at peace and we're at rest. And not only are we his resting place, he becomes our resting place. You know, he becomes my favorite place, the place I go for refreshment, not the place I have to kind of gear up and face him, you know, because I'm at peace with him. And that's become one of my, my greatest life goals. And I'll get rid of everything that gets in the way of that, any sin, any immorality, any distraction, anything to get rid of uh, to, to, that keeps me from being his resting place. Well, one of the things, uh, I interviewed Steve Hill recently, and one of the things he was very concerned about, he had his vision of the avalanche of false teaching in the last days. And one of the teachings he was concerned about was counterfeit grace. Yes. Uh, What's the difference between the two? Oh, I have a lot of energy right now on the counterfeit grace message. I believe it is one of the biggest uh, crisis in the church today. You know, I interact with a lot of young people in the, the worship movement, and there's this doctrine that defines grace as uh, Jesus did it all for us, and so we don't really have to do anything. We just It's more of a mind game. We just believe that he did it, and it doesn't matter what we do with our daily life. I mean, I'm, being, I'm making it too simplistic, but that's what it comes down to. And I believe Jesus did it all as far as our salvation but there is so much required in walking out that salvation and being transformed into his image. And my pain is that we have lowered the, the, the vision of what life in God looks like and, and the, the joy and the pleasure and the freedom of holiness, you know, the freedom of transcendence um, and this, this dark message of this false grace. Uh, I believe it. it is a dangerous, dangerous uh, lie that is hurting specifically our young people and and beyond. It, it, it's sort of like uh, the scriptures say, without holiness, we can't see God. Uh, and so when you die, if you're not going to see God, you're in big trouble. Yeah. But I like the line that you had, and that is that the human heart was created for 100% holiness. Yeah. And I think of holiness as, you know, as another word for transcendence and it's, it's actually freedom. It's the ultimate freedom. It's freedom from greed, from self-centeredness, from bitterness. You know, when we wage war upon our sin, we're, it's, it's about freedom. And so what I want to do is I want to give young people a vision for holiness, not what they, the paradigm that they have of a... You know, some of these Bible schools, Misty, and you may know it, uh, the kids are taught this counterfeit grace message, and they're sleeping with each other, and they're having babies out of wedlock. And what kind of generation, if this is the believers, are we having? Yeah. No, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because there's so much more in life in God. You know, we don't have to live this way um, I believe in mercy. You know, there's forgiveness and mercy, but we must line up with the truth. Okay, your favorite song is a child, Resting Place. Yes. Prepared a resting. 
where did you get such a love for the Jewish people? Oh, this is what this is one of my favorite topics. I love the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Um, is is as I began to study, you know, the Word of God after I joined the House of Prayer. I grew I grew up kind of. I wasn't what I call replacement theology. I was more like, don't think about it, theology. I never thought about Israel. It was never in my conversation. It was never a sermon that I heard. Um, so whenever I started the House of Prayer, um, I started reading the Scripture for the first time, really, in my life. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, Israel is everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. and so central. And then the more I began to study specifically the end-time plan of God— it's just, it's centered around Israel. Israel is the stage, and so, you know, it, Israel is the doorway in which Jesus is going to return to the planet. And in my love and my zeal for Jesus, I began to love his family and and uh, the doorway he chose to come the first time and the second time. Well, I'll tell you something that impresses me. Most Christians don't get it, but then those that get it don't go far enough. Uh, they 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 do what I'm very pleased because I have dual citizenship. I'm an Israeli as well as an American. Uh, they have blessed Israel nights, and they pack it with Christians and Jews. But they kind of agree not to talk about there's only one name given unto men in which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. Uh, and now is the time to be talking about that. And I'm impressed that you and the people at IHOP pray for the salvation of Israel. Yes. Why is that so important to you? Oh, I think that that's, that's central because it's the remnant of Israel who love Yeshua and are crying out, Come, Lord Jesus, return. That will bring him back to the planet. I mean, it's Jesus that's coming back. And, you know, if a Jewish person doesn't love Jesus, there is no other way to eternal salvation. And so for love for them, you know, I want them to know their Messiah as God. And so praying for the salvation of Israel, I believe, is one of the primary reasons the Lord is raising up a worldwide worship and prayer movement. It's a global movement. It's, it's far bigger than just Kansas City. But all across the earth, the Lord is raising up a company of people who are like watchmen on the wall, crying out for the salvation of Israel, and also willing to lay down their lives uh, for the sake of this salvation. Well, you know, uh, in the we were talking uh, last, I guess yesterday, about uh, Matthew 25. Uh, and Matthew 25 talks about the separation of goats and sheep goat nations and sheep nations. Yes. Sheep nation follows the shepherd. The goat has a mind of his own. Uh, and the bottom line, as I read that, and it just exploded in me, was what makes a nation or an individual a sheep nation? What makes an individual a goat or a sheep? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-five forty: As you have done unto the least of one of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And I looked up the word brethren, and it means his brothers and sisters from the womb, the Jewish people. So I believe the dividing line of phony believers and authentic believers in the last days will be a true biblical understanding and heart for the Jewish people in Israel. I, I agree with that. And I believe it's, it's because it's, it's offensive to a lot of believers. It's offensive that Jesus chose one people. 
you know, and it offends the mind, it offends the heart. And the Lord says, are you really in it for me? Like, do you really have an allegiance to me? And if you do, then you will love who I have chosen. You will agree with me. So it comes down to his lordship and his right to choose and his right to to choose the people that he chose. Um, so I believe it is the dividing line. And those of us who love Jesus will love what he's doing. And there, and just just in a more of an emotional way, these are his real brethren, his flesh and blood. So why wouldn't we love, why wouldn't we stand with his flesh and blood? We're we're coming to the wrap-up. Here is a young girl, uh, you knew life was short. You have to believe it's even shorter now uh, that you're in your 30s. Uh, Tell me, why is it people don't talk about uh, the day of the Lord and Jesus the judge I mean, that's, that's not politically popular in churches today. It's not. I believe there's a lot of misunderstanding around, you know, the face of Jesus, the judge. Um, a lot of people think, you know, all of that judgment has already occurred. But if you read those passages, I mean, it's so, if you take them at face value, it's so clear what's coming to the planet. And his zeal to bring forth his kingdom of love, you know, he's going to eradicate the earth of evil, of pride, of arrogance, and he's going to exalt the humble, and he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and rule the, the universe from Jerusalem. And that's going to be a, not an easy takeover. He's not going to just wave his hand and do that. You know, he's coming as a man, as a warrior, to fight on behalf of the poor and fight for Israel. And it's going to be an intense transition. <laughs> but I believe it's literal, and it's going to happen. Do you believe that you're going to be alive when Jesus returns? Oh. I, I would hope so. I, I, you know, I. I mean, is this the generation? I believe that if I believe it's my generation, maybe the next ones right under me. But I have a sense that it's this generation. I haven't had a, you know, thus says the Lord moment. But just from looking around at the signs of the times, from reading the scripture, everything is pointing in that direction. Well, you talk about we are entering into a time of a great shaking. Uh, what do you mean about that? I believe that we're already in, you know, a political, economic, religious shaking. Um, but I believe that according to the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, book of Isaiah, Matthew, you know, Jesus himself, uh, that there will be a time of great trouble across the entire earth, um, economically, politically, spiritually. And it will be at the hand of God, ultimately. I mean, he's got, there's always the devil's involvement you know, the, the sin of man, creation's own groan. Uh, there's several factors that are coming that are creating this crisis, but ultimately God is taking the earth and shaking everything that can be shaken as he's trying to get the attention of the world uh, to, to deal with him. They have to make up their mind what they believe and what they want. You were praying for America, and one of the few times in your life you heard the internal audible voice of God. What did he say to you? He said, I was praying intensely, crying out for mercy. We were, you know, it was a very anointed prayer time. And I was focused on mercy entirely. And I hear the thunderous voice of the Lord. And he says, what's it to you if I raise up a man like an ax in my hand to judge my church? What's it to you? My shepherds lie. They lie about my deity, They lie about my humanity. 
They lie about my first coming, and they lie about my second coming. They lie. What's it to you if I raise up a man like an axe in my hand to judge my church? And I was just I completely thrown off, completely. It was not the direction I was thinking or praying. And I just began to weep and cry out, you know, according to Jeremiah 23, that the Lord would raise up shepherds who are after his heart, who are not making money off the sheep or distorting the truth in order to be more socially relevant, but loyal to the truth, loyal to Jesus. And I, I, even now when I'm saying it, I just feel like I could weep crying out for these shepherds. He is against the lies that are rising up in the church. If you love her music, if you love the way she speaks, I believe she has a spiritual DNA to get you to hunger like you've never hungered before for the presence of God. Tell me real briefly about uh, this song, Light of Your Face. Oh, Light of Your Face is taken from the the priestly blessing over the, the priests of Israel would sing it or say it over the people. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And I just turned it around into a prayer. And it's one of my favorite uh, prayer requests before the Lord and one of my favorite things to prophesy. Light of your face. I want to get these three anointed CDs by Misty Edwards in her brand new book. The package is called Audience of One. It's an end-time package for an end-time person that knows they've got to hunger more, knows they need more oil, and this is going to give you that extra push available for a gift of $40, Audience of One.
To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming Mishpucha or Chalitzim, write to me, Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast, send a donation to Sid Roth. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.